Well, this afternoon, as we uh, return to our study in the book of Hebrews, uh, we are in the, what we might call the home stretch of the section we've been in, in chapter 9 through chapter 10, verse 18, looking at how Jesus is the greater sacrifice. My initial plan was to uh, round out the section uh, this week, uh, but as we, I got into developing the sermon and in view of having our business meeting, I decided to uh, go through 11 through 14 today um, because I was already quite a few pages into my writing when I realized I still had several, quite a bit to go in the text. So we'll be in verses 11 through 14 today. Uh, but in these last two messages in this section is not only the end of this section, but is also a transition in terms of the flow of the entire book. It ends what most commentators call the doctrinal section of the book of Hebrews and then moves on to the um, implications of everything we've been learning uh, for our uh, piety and for our practice individually and together as a church. Our text today, we mentioned we've been working from chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter uh, going through 10, verse 18. Uh, For the sake of context, let's go ahead and read the entirety of chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered since the worshippers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time, that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sins. Let us pray. Our Father, having heard your holy, your righteous, your good word, we have just heard your voice. 
And our Father, we pray you would help us to receive what we have just read, believing it and receiving it as your word. We ask, O Father, that you would do your good work in each of us as we study this text. We pray, O Father, that you would uh, help us each to be teachable, help us each, O Father, to be moldable. Would you increase and strengthen our faith by the good work of your Spirit? pray, O Father, that you would uh, work in this one who is preaching, that you would chain him to the text of your word so that he might freely declare your truth, that he might do so accurately and faithfully and understandably, such that your word might be declared. We pray these things, O Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been learning through the book of Hebrews, and there's, while there's a number of different ways that we could uh, label the theme of the book of Hebrews, we've gone with um, Jesus the greater than. We could also label the uh, book of Hebrews as testifying to this, praise God that there's no more sacrifices. But what we've been seeing is that Jesus truly is the greater than. In particular, with reference to everything that has come before in the progression of God's revelation of himself. He's greater than angels. We saw, first of all, he was the, uh, the God's greatest and final revelation. Everything in the scripture is summed up in Christ Jesus. And then we saw that he's greater than the angels. We saw that he's greater than Moses. And within that, we saw that he was greater than the priesthood as the Mosaic Covenant, being a high priest of a greater order who ministers on our behalf. One who does not have to make sacrifice for his own sin, but was heard on account of his own reverence on our behalf. And then we've been seeing that he is the greater sacrifice, that the sacrifice he offered on our behalf is one that is for all of us and is sufficient and need not be done ever again. And that was not a sacrifice offered by us, but one that he gave on our behalf. In the passage we looked at last week in verses uh, 5 through 10, we looked at how the author of Hebrews once again pulls a passage from the Hebrew scriptures and then points it to Jesus Christ. He looked at Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, and gave a summary of that in verses uh, five, the second half of verse 5 through verse 7. And we saw that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, when He came into this world, He said something. When He was incarnate in the person of Christ, thus coming into the world, He came to do the will of God, the body that was prepared for Him the sacrifices and the burnt offerings that have been offered really truly do not do that which is required. Rather, what he desires is obedience, and we fail to give him that in the garden. And so someone else has to obey on our behalf. And says that he has done that, and by that will, his doing the will of God 
We have been sanctified through the sacrifice of Christ once and for all. We have been set aside unto God and claimed as his own. And in that we've been justified. That is declared righteous before God. And we are being sanctified. God is working in us. And we see the fruits of that in our uh, little bits by which we grow in holiness. It's nothing compared to what we shall be. But it is a taste of that which is to come for us. And there is coming a day in which we shall be made perfect which we're going to actually talk a little bit about next time when he goes back to Jeremiah 31. But God desires obedience and we did not obey and no amount of sacrifice we can offer can undo our disobedience, whether it would be past, present or future disobedience. It is only the obedience and sacrifice of Christ that can undo that. For Christ did the will of God. And that passage in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, was written, while penned by David, was written of Christ. For the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures give testimony to what's coming in Jesus Christ. The covenants that God has made with man progressively, that is more and more, more and more. Through step-by-step revelation, make it more clear until the time of Christ. Christ being the absolute center of it all. So now, in verses starting in verse 11, we see a summary statement that begins to cap off this section to summarize and overview it. But not only this section, but as I mentioned earlier, the first part of the entire book. What many have called, as I said earlier, the doctrinal section of the book. The next two points in this section will finish that out. And we see it repeated here that the priesthood was not sufficient because it was not uh, because it did not have the ability to offer a sacrifice that could be sufficient for the priesthood was composed of imperfect priests, composed of priests who themselves were beset with sin. And even the sacrifices themselves, while they were by visible appearance spotless, could not undo sin. Because it was a man who rebelled against God in the garden, the first Adam. And when he did that, we did that. And so it requires a man to undo it. A greater Adam, going into broader biblical theology. And so we're going to be looking at the implications of all that we've been learning in the coming messages when we get to chapter 10, verse 19 and forward. We'll get there in a few weeks. But our passage today in verses 11 through 14 is broken up into three basic points. We see, first of all, that the, the priests, they, they carried out their service in a daily and continuous way without rest. There was no rest to their service. And then we're going to see the better sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ that one sacrifice for all time and his resultant rest. And then we're going to see the full perfection of the saints. That which he has provided for his people. 
So first of all, in verses 11, in verse 11, we see, first of all, this daily and continuous service of priests without rest. For he says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. We first of all see that this was a daily work of the priests. Every priest in the Levitical priesthood had a different, uh, had there were groups of priests in the Levitical priesthood and each had different functions with regards to the tabernacle and later the temple. Some were there to guard and to keep, some were there to keep it clean. Others were there to offer up the sacrifices, but everything revolved around the sacrifices. Everything revolved around the three festivals that they had every year. Capped and climaxed in the Day of Atonement. But regardless of whatever work they had, their work did not find an end. As long as that covenant was in force, that work did not ever find an end. It was done over and over and over and over and over, like a broken record, so to speak. The same sacrifices daily. Whether that would be the routine sacrifices of thanksgiving or the routine or the routine offerings for different things, or the annual sacrifice for the sake of the atonement. These were done repeatedly. And it was done without rest, for it was repeatedly. The priest who had finished his day's work, in whatever capacity he had served as a priest, had to go back the next day and do the very same thing. There was no end to it. As we learned, those sacrifices can never take away sin. For what they do is serve as a reminder of sin. Those sacrifices tell us there's a problem with sin. And there needs to be a sacrifice for sin. They testify to the reality of sinfulness. Is what those sacrifices did. They did not atone for sin in terms of any sort of eternal redemption. They did make provision for continued life in the land. For the Mosaic Covenant, as we've learned, is a covenant of what we call works. Just like that covenant that was made in the garden of do this and live. And so the Mosaic Covenant was for the purpose of life in the land. To continue in life in the land, they had to do certain works. It was not one of grace, while there were gracious elements. Though... God's grace in Christ Jesus extended backwards to all those who truly trusted in God, looking forward to His promise. But it was one that could not take away sin. It testified of our need. We see that not only is their work daily, as we said, it's been, it was repeated The offerings are repeated. The one who presents the offering to the priest, not only the priest, but the one who presents the offering to the priest is going to have to do it again. For it's a reminder of sin. The one presents their offering, finds that the sacrifice was accepted, goes on his way, only a short time later to find himself needing to make another offering. 
because some uncleanness had occurred or some sort of unintentional sin occurred. Remember, there was no sacrifice that could be offered for intentional sins. None whatsoever. David, in his intentional sin, there was judgment and he could not get out of that judgment. There was no sacrifice that he could offer. And we may say, I don't think I've ever committed an unintentional sin. Let's see, Christ's atonement made provision for the intentional sins. Remember, the very fact that they need repeating means that they were not sufficient to undo sin, as has been said several times in this section of Hebrews. Hebrews really drives home this point that these sacrifices offered over and over and over again cannot take away sin. They cannot make perfect the worshiper. They cannot sanctify the worshiper. As we said, they serve as a reminder of sin and the need for a sacrifice for sin. For a greater sin bearer would come. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but uh, or last time or the time before when we were in the book of Hebrews, we mentioned, um, you can see it on YouTube, from what used to be New Tribes Ministries. They've changed their name. I can't recall their name. But they had a video called Etow, E-E-T-A-O-W. It was a story of a couple from rural Pennsylvania who went to Papua New Guinea. They shared the story of Christ with a tribe, progressively going through the scriptures, showing the sacrifices and showing and teaching all of these things. And then they get to, got to Christ Jesus and his sacrifice upon the cross, and what he did for us, and they immediately understood what that was about because of the reminders for sin that they had learned about in that sacrificial system. That one has explained to them that if they believe upon Christ truly, have turned to him, Their sins are truly forgiven. And people started giving testimony. And then you see, all of a sudden, the whole village erupt into celebration. For their sins have been accounted as forgiven. Also take note that in Hebrews chapter 10, in our text today, it also says, every priest stands daily in his service. The word stand. This is important because we're going to see Christ has a different posture now. But every priest stands in his service. When I was in high school, I was in a marching band. And it didn't matter how many years I had done it, even my senior year, even though I was an officer from my line, Summer band in August was always a time that we were all relearning how to stand for a long time and to stand at attention. And so happened I was a tuba player, so I had to stand at attention for a long time with a 60-pound ring over my shoulder. There was very little rest. Even And those of you in the military know, even when they call for what's called parade rest, that's hardly a restful position. I guess it might be if you're used to standing at attention. And so it was in that band. But here they stood. 
every priest's stance. If we look at the temple and the tabernacle layout, nowhere in there do we see provisions for places for the priest to rest during their time they're in the temple. They stand. They're up and about. It's labor, constant work. There was no rest from that labor because that labor did not accomplish that which only the sacrifice of Christ could accomplish. But it was necessary labor commanded by God to be a constant reminder of sin and the need for sacrifice to atone for sin. R. Kent Hughes puts a description like this. Priests stood or kept moving because their imperfect work was never over. Every commentary I looked on this, all of them made the point, there was no place to sit for the priests in the temple and in the tabernacle. It was always work, always moving. You see, there is no rest from sin apart from a, apart from a sufficient sacrifice. The Sabbath looked forward to the day of the Lord in which there would be rest. It still looks forward for us, as we learned early in Hebrews, there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. Also, if you look at the amount of time, the priest did not spend a whole whole lot of considerable time in a given period of time in which they're serving in the inner places of the temple. It was mostly outside the temple. Remember that our Lord's work makes inter- our Lord's work for which he did for us makes intercession always. Always there in the inner place of the true temple of the heavenly place for us on our behalf. Even on the day of atonement, the time the high priest went into that most inner of inner places, into that holy of holies, in light of everything that went on, in light of the length of the festival, because there's the day, but there's a whole festival attached to that day. In light of the length of that, the amount of time that he spends in the Holy of Holies is actually rather small. Not a whole lot of time. And he had to go back in every year, the high priest. It was a labor. That, like the daily work of the ordinary priesthood, it never came to an end. And so this old covenant had no provision for rest from those sacrifices. There was provision in the Sabbath for the daily rest or for the weekly rest. As we, we read from the earlier, if you look at it, the Sabbath, which is a continuing command, but the form has changed. But the Sabbath and the Old Covenant was one that uh, was not only that one day, but that was an entire rhythm. The last, the seventh day of every week, uh, the seventh year of every seven years, uh, the, um, the seventh of every seven years. The four, on the 50th year, there was to be a, a grand Sabbath. But even that... came after work. It came after work. Six days you shall labor, and the seventh you shall rest. What we learn in Christ, and we'll talk in that in just a little bit, is after he finished work, his work, 
He rested not on the last day, but on the first day of the week. And so we rest, then we labor. So the one time, but then we see now the one time sacrifice of Christ and his resultant rest. So we now see the contrast in short form as a summary of what we've learned. First of all, we see that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice. Not a sacrifice that's offered over and over and over and over again. Those who would think that uh, we are somehow offering continued sacrifices that are re-offering Christ, such as in what's called the Mass, are sorely mistaken, are sorely wrong. Rather, it is a one-time sacrifice He did on our behalf. But before we get ahead of, before we start thinking highly of ourselves and think, oh, that's just them who do that, think of all the times that we think we have to make some sort of atonement for our sin. That we say, oh, I sinned. Oh, so I'm going to do this and this and this in order to uh, fix my sin, in order to appease God for my sinfulness. But before we get there, Christ offered a sacrifice that would remove sin, a single sacrifice. And he did it once for all. But now here he says, notice the word time. He did for all time. The sacrifice of Christ and the efficiency and sufficiency of a sacrifice transcends time and it transcends space. Transcend is a word that means goes beyond. What happened on Calvary when Jesus went upon that cross, is what brought redemption to all those who trusted in God before he died. It was not because of those bulls and those goats that they found redemption, but it was because of the death of Christ. It is because Jesus died once for all that Abraham was justified by faith. That David found forgiveness that Samson found redemption, that Jacob wasn't struck down for his deviousness, that Adam and Eve's nakedness was clothed because Jesus offered that sacrifice. Because Jesus offered himself as that sacrifice. What happened at Calvary is what has brought redemption and the removal of sins to all who have believed truly on Christ in the now. What happened at Calvary is what has brought an end to all of our past sins. But my brothers and sisters, because it transcends time, it is not only our past sins, but also our present sins and our future sins. Our present sins and our future sins find forgiveness because Jesus died for them once for all time. And so we can go with confidence to the Lord if we believe upon Christ and say, forgive my sin. Because he has in Christ Jesus. And some might object to that saying, well, that gives me a license then to go ahead and just do what I want. Uh, my brother and sister, if you think that's what the implication of that is, you sorely misunderstand the gospel. It is because he died once for all time that 
Christians engage in mission. For there are those whose sin is still hanging over them. Thus we announce Christ. We announce that there is removal of sin. And there is a promise of perfection to come. And that is found alone in Christ because he died once for all time. It is because Jesus lived and he died that we engage in mission. That we share the gospel of Christ And because he died once for all time, there is redemption and forgiveness coming to those elect who have not yet believed. To whom the gospel has not come. To whom the Holy Spirit has not opened their minds and their hearts that they might receive the word. And Christ will tarry, that means wait, in a a wait to come again until that full number has been redeemed in accordance with the purpose of his will. Because his love is steadfast and he is long-suffering. Another word for saying he's patient. Not wishing that any of those whom he has redeemed, that he he has called, chosen, uh, might not be called. He wishes for them all to be called. We learned in chapter 9, just as and just it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Man dies once and faces judgment. Christ was offered once to bear our sins. And he's coming back for us, but not to deal with the issue of our sin. He dealt with that at the cross, but rather to bring bring the fullness of redemption to those who are waiting for him and to mete out his judgment against those who are still yet in their sin. And Jesus is not offering repeated sacrifices to atone for sin, nor does he ask us so to do. We do not have any sacrifice that we could offer that could atone for our sin. And yet how often in our pride do we even flirt with the idea, let's flirt with the idea, and I've got this sin. Maybe if I do X, Y, and Z, God will be okay with me. No, it's a matter of turning from that to Christ and seeking his grace and favor that he might help us to overcome that sin. But solely in his grace and in his favor, solely through Christ Jesus. How often do we think we need to add to what Christ did for us to ease our consciences or to bring us some sort of peace? Maybe we say to ourselves, I'll pray harder and longer. I'll serve more. I'll make sure I read the Bible more. Now, I don't want to say those are bad things. Those are good things. It's good to pray harder and longer. It's good to serve more. It's good to read the Bible more. But if we're doing it as a matter of sacrifice to appease our nagging sin, we're missing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. All those are necessary things for us to do. 
but they don't do one thing to appease our nagging sin. Because always there is Christ. And now we see another contrast between Christ and the priesthood. We saw that the priesthood offers those sacrifices continually. Remember, we saw that the priests stood in the temple daily carrying out their work. There was no rest in it. There was no end to it. But what happened after Jesus completed his work? It says, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus did something the priests could not do. He sat. He rested from his labors. Because he finished the work. The very fact that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, the very fact that he sat down at the right hand of the Father testifies to the reality of what he said in his dying breaths when he said in the Greek, tetelestai, which means it has been completed. It has been completed. The very fact that he sat down means he rested from his labors because he did it. There's so much in this language of him resting and sitting and finishing. When we think and tire the whole scriptures, I imagine I should write some sort of a book about this. If I give, I have a million book ideas, so um, we'll see if one ever gets written. Back to the creation. God created in six days, and in the seventh he rested. We say that's the basis for the first iteration of the Sabbath commandment in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, based on the fact that God created and he rested. And we see there's a second iteration of the Sabbath commandment in the book of Deuteronomy. A second issuing of it in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. But it was here the basis for it was not the creation, although it is still rooted in creation. But the basis for it now was their deliverance from Egypt. From Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 12 through 15. What I read just a moment ago was Exodus 28 through 11. He says it almost reads the exact same thing with the exception of the end when he says, instead of saying four and six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It says this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand to an out, to an out, and an outstretched arm. arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It was rooted in the fact that this, the basis there had to do with deliverance. Built into the covenant life of Israel as a marker that God rested after his finished work of creation. And built into the covenant life of Israel as a marker of their exodus. And their exodus was their rest from their slavery. Their slavery to Egypt. So thus, after their work, they rest. We also see that the Sabbath work points to Christ, that there's a greater rest coming. We may, some of us may 
remember a song, I think it was from the 70s, maybe from the 60s. It goes something like this. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. There's a context to that verse. Our wife and I will regularly say, um, either I'll, op- I'll say it in the morning or she'll say it. It says, this is the day the Lord has made. And then well, we do a responsive recitation to ourselves. This is the day the Lord has made. And the other one of us responds, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We do a little liturgy. But hear the context of Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What is the day that the Lord has made that he's speaking of there? The day in which the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the day that he has made, the day of our salvation. What we saw in 1 Peter when I, several years ago that Jesus is that stone that the builders rejected, but he's become the chief cornerstone. So this day that the Lord has made is the day that Jesus accomplished his redemption. Christ, the stone that the builders rejected, this day that the Lord has made is the day of deliverance, the day of rest. So let's look at this language in Hebrews. After offering a sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. He rested from his labors. We can see that pointed to even in his death and resurrections. Resurrection. The Gospels go to great lengths to point out when our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead not on the day of rest according to the Mosaic Covenant, but he rose from the dead on the first day of the week. In John 20, we have a marvelous account of Mary of Magdalene and Jesus in the garden, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet, They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where have you laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to her disciples, I have seen the Lord, to his disciples, I have seen the Lord, and and that he had said these things to her. Notice the imagery that we have there. 
The beginning of the Gospel of John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things that came into being came into being through Him. There's not one thing that's been created that was not created through Him. So we have creation imagery, and Jesus is the Word who is both with God and God at the same time the second person of the Trinity, and the Word became flesh. And we have this imagery of creation. He's going back to creation. And what do we have here in the garden? We have the second person of the Trinity and the person of Jesus Christ and Mary together. Where? In the garden. God and man are together in the garden again in a new creation. And plus... Adam is back in the garden as well. For the greater Adam, Jesus is in the garden. We are back in the garden. It's testimony to the new garden and new creation, a new day of rest. When he rose from the dead, he rested from his he rested from his sacrifice once for his he rested from his once for all time sacrifice. Forty days later, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he now sits. In the moment he rose from the dead, he was rested. Now we rest in him. We still have a Sabbath rest coming to us, so we still recognize the fourth commandment, which we'll see more details of that in chapter 10, verses 19 through 24. But just as there was progression for the basis, so there is progression now. But we don't work, then rest. We rest, then work. Jesus sitting testifies of this in his rest. He finished a new creation and he rested from his labors. His work made something new, a new humanity who are the, the, the community of his new creation, which finds its full manifestation when our text says, when he is done waiting and comes back to, back to bring full and final rescue to all those who are waiting for him. He has brought redemption, a kingdom of his redemption, and he has created a community of that kingdom. And that community is solely occupied by the church of Jesus Christ. The church is the sole community of that kingdom. It is not of this world. But we see that he is not only sitting, but he is also waiting. He's waiting for all of his enemies to become a footstool. Get this imagine. He's sitting, but waiting for a footstool. That is something upon which to rest his feet. That's the imagery that's being pointed to. And he's waiting for all of his enemies to become that footstool. Who are those enemies? but the principalities of the powers and all those that would stand against the face of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's waiting for is the full number of those whom he has called to enter into this new humanity through faith in him. That is his creation. This language actually is a callback to the very beginning of the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 13, which cites Psalm 110 to argue that Jesus is greater than angels. For he says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer, of course, is none of the angels. He said that to none of them. But this is also alluded to in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 through 28. 
It says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. But all things are in subjection under his feet, but all things will be put in subjection under him to when it shall be realized. Both the now and there's the not yet. And what is this last enemy to be put underneath? It is the enemy, that enemy is death. For he defeated death in his resurrection. And there's coming a day when death will finally be defeated at the time when we, his people, raise from the dead in and to glory. When the unbelievers raise from the dead unto eternal and everlasting judgment in eternal hell. Until then, he reigns, having completed his work. That last enemy to put, be put under subjection is that of death. Death is an absolute reality for people who live, for us even as believers who live in this age. Though we be redeemed, death still touches us. The sad reality is that though there will one day be a seat at our, at our dining room tables that is empty, that was once occupied or around the fireplace gathering, there will be an empty spot where someone used to sit. But praise be to God that through Jesus Christ, he has conquered death on our behalf, and death does not have the final say. And when that day of resurrection comes, when he returns, death will have breathed this last. last. Now, him putting enemies under under his feet does not mean, some people take that to mean, we are completing his work. Does not, we do not complete his work in any sense of the work. He accomplished his work. We don't finish it. Again, that's us in our pride thinking we can add to what he did. Christ already disarmed the powers at his cross. Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in himself. It's rather the full number of those for whom he died coming to faith in Christ with the last enemies to finally and with the last enemies to be finally and fully disarmed being sin and death. While sin and death were defeated at the cross, my brothers and sisters, they are still present in reality for this fallen world. And we still ourselves deal with the presence of sin. The new creation, all of that shall be gone for we will be glorified and the curse of death will finally have breathed its last. That is for what we wait. Just as the people waited for the priest to emerge from the Holy of Holies, alive, indicating the sacrifice has been accepted, we have the true promise that Jesus testified that when Jesus died, he rose from the dead, he came back, he emerged, and sacrifice was accepted. And when he's returning, we will see that in its full manifestation. Why is all of this true? As it says, verse 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
because by a single offering he has perfected those who are being sanctified. He has made us perfect in his sight and he will make us perfect in glorification. And in the meantime, it says we are being sanctified. We saw earlier his people have been sanctified. It's a complete work. We've been set apart and counted towards him. He has declared us his own, set us apart to himself in Christ Jesus. And we are also being sanctified. Now, sometimes we say the being sanctified, that sanctification means that we act more holy. That's, there's truth. But that's the result of his sanctification. The fruit of his sanctifying work. For Philippians 2, 12 and 13, after expounding upon the need for us to consider others better than ourselves and their interests as much as our own, based upon the work of Christ Jesus, he then says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. A lot of people stop there. A lot of people stop right there and say, see, we have to work for it or we have to work it out. It depends upon us. And they often stop there. But you keep reading. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That that working out our salvation with fear and trembling is a fruit of God's working in us. And so we look to him and trust him to do that work in us. And so by that one sacrifice, he did what the law could not do, bring perfection. We have perfection in our standing, having been justified by faith. We, are, we will never be more righteous than we are in our justification. We will not be more justified than we are now. And then there will be practical perfection in the end in our thought, word, and deed. Where not only will we, will, will we be counted righteous, that is Christ's obedience counted on our behalf and his sacrifice removing our sin, those two sides of justification, the double cure for sin, as the song says. But also, we shall be that way in thought, word, and deed. Even then, as we'll see next time, as the second, second part of the summary, God's law has now been written on our hearts and following it is a matter of love for God and not a, not a slavish tit-for-tat quest to gain favor or to remove judgment from God, as 1 John four fifteen through 18 tells us. And what I mean by that, before we read that, is how often we think, and we read people who do that, they, we try to have given some sort of motivation to be more obedient. Be more obedient so that way you can have enough works at the final judgment for your justification to be real. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Or be be more obedient so you can get more rewards. But rather, the Christian obeys because he's put it upon our, our hearts. We don't do so perfectly far from it. 
but in that which we do, we do it because he's given us a love for him. For 1 John 4, 15 through 18 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that love, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So part of our sanctification is growing in our reasons for obeying him because he's given us love for him. Because he's given us his law written upon our hearts. And there's coming a day when it shall be written fully upon our hearts. That does not find its real fulfillment until the end. We have tastes of it. And so, in conclusion, my brothers and sisters, Jesus presented once for all time a sacrifice on our behalf and did what the law was useless to do. It does not mean the law is evil or the law, is, <clears throat> the law has no function, but the law cannot do what the sacrifice of Christ did. Jesus once for all time perfected those who are being sanctified. He's done it all. And Jesus rested from his labors, and so our rest is from him. And we are called to keep Sabbath, to rest in him, and then labor. Because Jesus rested, there's coming a day when we shall also finally find rest from death and from our, all of the sinfulness which is around us and in us. And that's why we still keep Sabbath to this day. We rest on the first day, coming together in accordance with um, God's providence and the ways he's worked out. We may say, but it's so hard to do so. I have so much to do. I think that this day God has given us six days to do everything else. If you and I are such workaholics that we can't just take a day a week to work to rest, and even if Sunday can't be our rest, just to take a day to rest. We need to really grow in our understanding of what it is God did for us in Christ Jesus because he rested from his labors. So we are called upon to rest from our labors in looking forward to the fact that there's still a Sabbath rest waiting for us. Let us put off the various ways we try to add to Christ's sacrifice. Let us press in to lay hold of the full assurance of that which Christ has given us, as we'll be exploring in coming weeks. So let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are ever good to us, that you are ever working in us. And we thank you that Jesus is our sufficient sacrifice, who lived for us, died for us, and rose from the dead for us, so that in him we have life. We pray you would help us to rest from our labors and to rest from our sin in view of the fact that there will be a rest in which we finally get to sit. We pray these things, our Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.